We Found Love Right Where We Are, Arranged Love Blossoming, Medieval Edition. Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast. On this episode of our Valentine series, we're looking at the medieval couples who were brought together by an arranged marriage. Despite this, they found love and comfort in the union, so much so that their love became legendary. We have great historians with us today. First, let's talk to Chris Riley, and he'll tell us about the union of Matilda of Flanders and William the Conqueror, who at the time of marriage was just William the Bastard of Normandy. So they had a, a famous meeting as well, apparently. <laughs> Can you tell us about their meeting? Yeah, <laughs> this is another rough one. A bit of a rough wooing, I think, is the, is the polit- politically... Yeah, that's kind of seems to be the what I would probably apply to this as well, a bit more yeah. literally. So William's a bastard, um, and I can say that, and everybody knows what I mean. But William's not the nicest of guys. I respect William, but I don't really like him. But William's the, the son of a duke, the illegitimate son of a duke, and he spends his entire life climbing upwards. You've got to respect it, but... You know, the, one of the first things he does is he he tries to he manages to figure out a wedding, uh, sorry, a marriage that would would benefit him, and that's with the uh, with Flanders. Flanders at this point is very very powerful, probably more powerful than than the Dukes of Normandy anyway. Very very close to the French throne and a major producer and and trader with with places like England and the Low Countries. But um, he ends up. The story's a bit, obviously, a bit hazy. It's medieval history, but he ends up basically attacking his future wife Matilda, and yeah, it's it's pretty horrible for her. I don't, I don't really. The details are obviously, I don't want to go into too deep, too much detail if it, if it's terrible. But ultimately, her dad's fine with this um, because this is completely normal. This is completely normal how you how you get yourself a wife, um, and he's like, yeah, no worries. Well, we'll we'll get you married uh, nice and quick, and yeah, it's. Uh, it's pretty horrible, but I think it's very much a William William the Conqueror story. He's a he's a pretty aggressive young man, I think. So is it safe to say that Matilda was not happy with this arrangement to begin with? No, no, I, I don't think so. Um, I I wouldn't be happy in that situation. I don't think if if some bloke had turned up and and a tall one up. as well, yeah, a very very tall one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but surprise, yeah, because I'm only five six, so that's not what I want at all. But uh, yeah, I guess maybe tall, dark, and handsome eventually brought around yeah, at the time no not not a fan bless her poor matilda of flanders how accurate do you think this story is i hope it's inaccurate i hope it's really inaccurate and i hope it's you know this didn't happen and i hope this is propaganda against william but what i know about william you know during his life as you know a young duke of normandy and then as king of england i i believe it happened Probably yeah. to the letter, unfortunately. There is a story that she didn't want to marry him because he was a bastard. Mm. It's an interesting time when we talk about illegitimacy because illegitimacy in terms of inheritance and viewed by the church, is it's it's not something that was, was done. You shouldn't really be allowing things to go to illegitimate children. But in, in the sake of William, his father had no real choice. He, he had the illegitimate, he had a gaggle of illegitimate sons. So one of them was going to inherit. But it was just starting, which is ironic because William becomes king of England as as an illegitimate son. But it's starting to become unfashionable, unfavorable, where you know for illegitimate sons to be prominent. And um, it's only like a generation later where we see a completely viable heir to the throne in Robert of Gloucester, the son of Henry the First, be completely overlooked, which you know in part causes a 
20 year long civil war but matilda is she's related to the french throne she is the creme de la creme of european brides to be and there's some half viking illegitimate son of a duke literally comes and you know knocks on the door and says you know let's get married in very very unpolite terms so yeah, it's just it's not a suitable marriage for Matilda. It's a very, very good marriage for William. He he manages to elevate himself quite considerably. But for Matilda, yeah, it's it's not good. Or it's, it doesn't start good. I don't know, you said the V word there. I mean that gets quite a lot of girls even now. Yeah, absolutely. So after a, a rocky start, they would go on to have a, a a good relationship. Matilda and William are one of those rare couples in this where they it starts terribly and gets progressively better. Um, they have a very successful marriage in terms of children. Obviously, they have two future kings in their children, a, a Duke of Normandy, and you know they marry their daughters well into prominent families. And as we've discussed on a previous episode about the white ship, the be- my favourite thing about these two is is the gift that Matilda apparently gives William, which is his ship, the Mora, which he sails to England on. And I think that's just a really cool present. I'd love someone to give me a ship. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What do you get? A half French, half Scandinavian Duke of Normandy, who's on the the verge of the greatest invasion of England that, you know, humanity's ever seen, a giant ship. So, yeah, I think, yeah, they definitely get on. I think you have to really get on with someone to buy them a ship. But William trusts Matilda through his reign as well. He's more than happy to allow her to administer lands in England or in Normandy, depending on where he is. You know, Mm. this guy spends almost no time in England. He's back in Normandy. Then he's back in England dealing with the Northerners. So he's back in Normandy. And then, and Matilda's going with him. She's staying to, to run whichever side of the channel he's not on. So yeah, again, it's, it's a political marriage first and foremost, you know, he's King of England. That makes the, the marriage, I don't want to say worth it for Matilda, but it definitely, Mm elevates the value for her and i'm assuming there was a there was an understanding between the two of them that yeah it was political but they could also get on and clearly they did because you know they had multiple children i don't think william had any mistresses which should not be the marker of a good relationship that's a bare minimum (laughs) but at this point we'll take it yeah it's bad when you can say oh they loved each other because there was no mistresses yeah it's terrible isn't it (laughs) With um, royal love stories, it's true though. <laughs> For most of the couples we're discussing, yeah, this kind of the barometer. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say like, that a few times, I think. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> totally in love because no mistresses. No mistresses. <laughs> so, where in this point is Normandy and where is Flanders? They're very close to each other. So, Normandy is the bit of France that is right over the coast from England. And then Flanders is just to the right. So it's roughly where Belgium is and a little bit of the Netherlands and and that area. It's directly over the coast from England. Again, they're they're great trade partners through pretty much the whole, well, up until I'm assuming they still trade now. But, you know, the whole, it's, it's a marker of medieval trade is England and Flanders. England makes the cloth and sends it to Flanders. Mm. So it's very, very close Matilda married William before the conquest. What mm. was her role during that? Um, is there anything left that we know her thoughts on it? Yeah, it's, it's frustrating again because the Bayeux tapestry is is such a prominent part of the invasion, but women in general are so absent from the Bayeux tapestry and, and women's opinions and thoughts are so absent from this period of history. But I guess a, a, doing a bit of assumption, she gave them a ship. 
So she must have been involved in the prep. I really like the ship. Um, she must have been involved in the preparation for the invasion because I think she, well, she had to be because if this fails, best case scenario, William runs back to Normandy with his tail between his legs mm. and they are basically humiliated. You know, worst case, he dies in England. She's a probably pretty in danger widow either in England or back in Normandy with these sons that now feel probably obliged to invade England. And um, yeah, she she seems to be a very a very active and very intelligent duchess and then later queen. William makes a big point about having her crowned as queen in 1068, um, you know, to, to, to mark the fact that this was this was for good. This was this was a step change that wasn't going to go away mm. um, as much as a lot of people in England very much wanted it to, you know, just a, a year later, William was, was burning the North of England um, to the point where it was inhospitable for, for a generation. And, you know, I don't want to throw the genocide word around, but it's as probably as close as, as England will ha- has seen to, to a genuine genocide. So, you know, William's not a nice guy, but hmm. he did trust Matilda through, through their marriage and through their relationship. She was probably just scared to death. The guy's got two nicknames. One of them's Bastard and one of them's Conqueror. <laughs> but he's she's... not William the Nice, is he? <laughs> no, no. William the Funny. No. <laughs> she does seem to have a lot of agency, though, because she goes behind his back when it comes to the son, who has a little bit of a thing. Yeah, William and his sons, it's just one of those things. It just seems to just be a night. A royal thing. Yeah, again, yeah. And, you know... I've I've spoke about Henry the First quite a lot in the past, and how I think he was probably William's actual favorite, even though William Rufus, William the Second, gets the throne of England. I think, yeah, it's it seems to be we see it again with with Henry the Second and Eleanor of Aquitaine. There we go. It took me forty minutes to mention her. <laughs> um, you know, you see this, you know, mother and son versus father, and. I honestly don't know how much I ever believe of these stories because it's it's very convenient to blame a mother for a son being a bit irritating. Uh, obviously, um, Robert Curto is William's eldest son, who I guess if you follow in normal inheritance law should have got everything. He, he, he rebels against his father multiple times and really does himself dirty and does himself out of the throne of England, probably. But yeah, I think... I imagine that William had a great respect for Matilda. She proves on multiple occasions, you know, when, like I said, when when William's in England, Matilda is in Normandy acting as Duchess with almost absolute authority. Um, So they must have had a a considerable respect for each other. You know, William is probably one of the most prolific, aggressive and, and violent kings England has ever known. And for him to be absolutely fine with his wife, a woman, which at this point is like the worst thing you could be and allowing her to, you know, control an entire duchy or a kingdom at one at some point. Yeah. They, she must've just been, she must've been seen as somewhat of an equal. And I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to put rose tinted glasses on this relationship, no. but he got a lot out of the relationship as much as she did. So yeah, there's definitely, yeah, she held her own massively. Mm, yeah, definitely. I don't think the women should be blamed, but I can definitely see mothers, all the way through history, sticking up for their sons against their fathers, because, I mean, I would do it. My sons, my, my, I've yeah. got their sons back, 100%. <laughs> I'll t- my, even my when they're wrong. <laughs> my mum would do it as well, yeah. I know. I know she would. 100%. So maybe there is absolute, maybe yeah. it's all absolutely true. 
every time. So after her death, because she dies first, William says he will give up hunting. What a good guy. (laughs) Not for long, though. He doesn't say forever. He just says for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think William the First... Wow, he's his real title for the once (laughs) once there. William the Conqueror really, really loved hunting, probably more than anything in the world, from, from what we can gather. Um, so to give up hunting, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of half joking about it, but it shows yeah. how much he he did love Matilda. And she dies in, in 1083, a couple of years before before William dies. And, you know, apparently he die, she dies with him by her side. And it's, it's yeah, he to give up hunting, yeah, for William the First, it, it must have hit him very hard um, for, for good reason. Yeah, he doesn't remarry or even think no. about remarrying. No, I mean, maybe... Maybe things would have changed if he'd have lived longer than he did. Mm. He dies in 1087, famously falling into the saddle of his own horse, then exploding at his own funeral. But he had enough children. He had enough sons. Mm. He had adult sons. He had three adult sons who could inherit, who ironically all inherit at least something um, from each other. <laughs> um, but that's a whole mess on its own. But yeah, I think, you know, Henry I, his, his youngest son, who does remarry after his wife dies, there was a need. There was no legitimate heir. But mm-hmm. yeah, William had no need to to remarry. You know, he was old. He didn't. He didn't need. He didn't need any more sons causing any more problems? Yeah, because that is a theme for this for this family. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's fast forward two and a half centuries and look at our next pairing: Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. So Edward's father arranges this marriage. Yes. What was the need for this marriage? What was Eleanor going to bring? So Edward's father, Henry III, is another misunderstood king, but he's kind of rubbish at being a king most of the time. Probably the greatest thing he does is is, is arrange this marriage. So it will shock no one to, to, to hear that at this time in the, in the 13th century that England and France are not getting on at all. And... Henry's goal was to to reclaim the lands of of his father, King John, who royally messes it all up and loses everything. And to do this, he seeks out marriages, including his eldest son, Edward I. Uh, he marries them into the, the Castilian throne. Castile is, again, my geography is going to be tested here, is in northern Spain, or what is today northern Spain. And it, and it borders Gascony and the south of France, where the most... Again, the most hotly debated land was there. So to have an ally so close to Gascony and so close to places like Bordeaux and Poitiers, it was it was very, very advantageous to to have the southern border secured because everywhere else it was it was a nightmare for Henry III. So they were really, really young when they married. And they were together through quite a lot of turbulent times, the Barnes Wars and things. Do you think that's yeah. what got them close together? Yeah, I think I don't want to say it's a funny anecdote because it's not, but they were teenagers when they got together. I think Edward was maybe 15 and Eleanor 12, 13, and mm. they had to get separated pretty quick due to Eleanor becoming pregnant, um, which again, is not funny. It's terrible. They shouldn't do that. But I think this shows that there's a, there was an immediate attraction. But yeah, I think their first, well, let's call it first sort of 10, 15 years of being together was, was really traumatic. Uh, as, as you've kind of already mentioned, that the Second Baron's War in the 1260s, Simon de Montfort um, and, and Henry III, Battle of Evesham, Battle of Lewis. We have all this turbulence at home in England. Then Edward goes on crusade. 
in, in 1072. Um, then his father dies and Edward becomes king of England, not in England. It's the first time the sentence, the king is dead, long live the king, is uttered to avoid another period of interregnum because Simon de Montfort has caused such a problem back home. You know, you've got the Second Baron's War and then the crusade that Edward is on, Eleanor is with him. You know, my favourite part of probably their whole relationship is what happens or allegedly happens on crusade, which for those that don't know, Edward goes on a very small expedition to, to, the, to the Holy Land after narrowly avoiding landing in North Africa, where he would definitely have got dysentery and died like everyone else that went there. Um, he is in, I think he's in Acre at the time, which is kind of the the last bastion of of um, Chris, uh, Christian power in in the in the Levant, and the the story goes that an assassin at night creeps through Edward's window and and tries to kill him with a with a poison blade. He doesn't kill him. Edward is able to get rid of the attacker and, and kill the assassin, but he does catch him with the poison. And Eleanor, you know, very very nicely decides to suck the poison out. Whether this story is true or not, I don't know. I hope it is. I think it's a great story. And I think it's it's maybe made up um, to highlight how much they loved each other and how successful of a marriage it would later be. It's a great story because, again, like I said, it highlights how how into each other they were mm. because you don't suck poison out of just anybody, you know, not just for the risks. It's, it's probably not a nice thing to do, if I'm honest. Nope. I've never I've... done it, but <laughs> if I do, I'll come back and I'll explain how how terrible it was. And how you survived, because I don't know how you survived that. Yeah, because the poison's got to go somewhere, hasn't it? Yeah, so I'm very confused to how that could have been a but thing. In Edward, I don't or in Eleanor, well, that's science. We've already had geography, now science. <laughs> All my worst subjects. <laughs> Sorry. Fine. As long as there's no maths, I think I'm okay. Is it true that there was a story that during Lent, or the period where by religion they were not supposed to sleep together, they did, and he paid some kind of fine for it. One of the interesting things about the medieval calendar is I think you can only have sex about four times a year or something. It's ridiculous. The church says you can't do it on Sundays, you can't do it on feast days, you can't do it around Christmas, you can't do it on Lent. You can't do it if it's sunny, if it's raining, if it's windy, if you've got blonde hair, if you've got dark hair. There's so many reasons why you can't. But everybody did anyway, of course. I don't think we're any different today, but the story that they were always at it. They bless them. They tried it so many times because they just could not have a healthy male heir. It just didn't seem to happen until the very, very end. You know, we almost had a king, Alfonso. Alfonso was the heir for for a while, and he unfortunately died very young. And we eventually get Edward II, um, which is a whole other story. But yeah, I think it's one of the things that just kind of make you laugh when you think about how restrictive and how in, how into sex the church were. For some, for for a group of people that really weren't, shouldn't have been concerning themselves with them, they were very, very concerned and very active in how, when, why, and and all all of that. People were, well, you know, so why today they would that. have made an app, basically. Yeah, you've probably got a notification on your yeah. phone that says, "Right, it's time. We've yeah. got a fifty-four minute window <laughs> where we can we can do this, and then it's that's a it, widget on the wallpaper or something. Yeah. Yeah. Calendar event. Yeah, yeah, get invited to an iCal event. Yeah, yeah, but you, I don't think you'd be allowed to do it any day because there is so many more saints. Every day is a saint day. Yeah. So Everyone's born on a saint day. And it's like there can't be that many saints. No, there is. Um, but yeah, apparently there is. But yeah. Yeah. 
It's yeah. kind of like today when you open Instagram and it's the day of something. Today is an yeah. International Library Day. Tomorrow yes. is International Sibling Day. And then you go, is there somewhere where these are drawn from or just someone decides it? And then we have to celebrate another today. Okay, the Black Cat Awareness Day, I'm behind, but we, we don't need yeah. five sibling awareness days per year. Yeah, my birthday is um, International Skateboarding Day, which I'm a fan of. But other than that, get rid of the rest. We've not come that far, actually, when you think about it. We've just gone from Saints Days to Left-Handed Day. Eleanor went to Crusade and maybe sucked out some poison. But how normal is that for women to do that, to go on Crusade and go into conflicts with their husband at that time period? I mean, it wasn't completely as uncommon as you may think, but it, it wasn't it wasn't expected and it wasn't it wasn't viewed as very safe, obviously. I guess the most famous woman to go on a crusade is, is Eleanor of Aquitaine, but it's not her episode. But she does set a pretty poor precedent for women being on crusade. It doesn't go well for Eleanor of Aquitaine, and this is this isn't that far away from then. I'm not gonna try and do the maths. Alright, I'm gonna try and do the maths. Oh, we're in maths now. No, not going to try. A long time ago, in a crusade far, far away. Yeah, it's 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 not advised. Um, but you know, at this point, they're still very new to each other, and and mm. you know, first and foremost, we need a son. We need to secure the succession. And at this point, that wasn't that wasn't a guarantee. So they had to stay together to produce children, because mm. if we look at say Hen- Henry the you know, go way, way, way into the future. Henry V dies in, in 1422, but his wife had just produced a child. So, yes, it was catastrophic and caused the Wars of the Roses, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Or would yeah. it? <laughs> anyway, not, <laughs> not going to go there. How equal was their marriage? If we take the insane misogyny and, you know, all that out of it, probably, again, more equal than, than people think. Eleanor was was a great patron of the arts back in England. She was she held court um, on her own. She administered her own lands. I said she, she was very much into the arts. And yes, yeah, she wasn't leading men into battle and she wasn't making grand political gestures like Edward, but also that wasn't her role in a political sense, you know, as you can kind of you see from other situations, you know, the Empress Matilda, for example, the role of queen was a very specific job role. It wasn't the female equivalent of a king, as it is now. It wasn't even necessarily the wife of a king. It was a very specific set of jobs that you had to do um, that were expected. But ultimately, Edward and Eleanor seemed to adore each other for their entire marriage. Edward didn't take any mistresses, which has become the standard of a good medieval marriage. So, um, Or any marriage, really. Yeah, yeah. base level <laughs> standards, you know expectation um, but at this point this you know this is a this is a big deal sex love and marriage were separate things mm. if a marriage yielded all of it awesome but it wasn't expected not for not for kings and dukes and queens it, it was it was very much expected that there would be others to provide certain functions let's say um, but that doesn't happen between Edward and Eleanor and you know similar to to William I and, and Matilda of Flanders, there seems to be a great respect for each other. And I think that's shown in Eleanor's afterlife as such. She is 
well remembered by Edward in a in a pretty nice way. And it, it's not done before and it's not done since in England. So yeah, I think they got it. Yeah. What happens after her death? Eleanor unfortunately dies in twelve ninety after I'm not gonna do the maths, a long time of being married. Thirty six like years. Thirty thirty six years. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> 36 years, which is, again, it's, it's a really long time, especially mm. at this point where life expectancy wasn't much above that. She likely dies of complications due to pregnancy or, or at least being heavily pregnant for most of her adult life, um, which is, you know, one of the many crosses that medieval women unfortunately had to carry. No pun intended again. She dies in 1290 in, at Lincoln, and Edward is absolutely distraught beyond inconsolable and he has her body taken to to london and every place where the body stops he has a cross constructed i think it is a practice from france originally i think this is something that happens in europe um, and these memorial crosses are erected obviously to show you know a deep love for someone um, and these crosses are dotted from lincoln to london Unfortunately, there's not many left, but I guess the good thing is there are still some left. Famously, anyone been or from or around London will know Charing Cross. Um, most people know it as a station, but outside there is a giant, completely Victorian remake, but a Eleanor Cross, as they're often referred to, which I think is just, a, I guess, an ultimate symbol of, of true love. She is in, in the crosses. She is kind of, there's a funeral effigy, I guess, up the side and I think it's in Charing Cross Tube Station. I hope it's still there. But there's really, really cool artwork down the wall of the Charing Cross being being made. Um, I remember I was in London a few years ago and I saw it and I like audibly gasped because I'm not from London. You can tell by my accent. I'm very much from the north. Um, so to see these, I was a proper country bumpkin that day. Um, to see this really, really cool like woodcut style art on the wall I can't remember the artist of the of the crosses being made. It, it's great, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, we only have. I think there's maybe two, three originals left, and they're partial originals, unfortunately. But yeah, if you're ever in ever in London, go to Charing Cross and and have a look because uh, yeah, it's a it's a really cool reminder of Edward the First and Eleanor. The first stop on my Royal London tour, actually, the medieval and Tudor monarchs. Literally, that, that's the first stop. If you didn't already have a reason to do that, now you do. <laughs> After her death, Edward does go on it and gets remarried. How did that relationship compare? I don't think it ever compared. It, it reminds me of Henry VII contemplating remarriage after Elizabeth of York dies. I never really understood why... Ah, I say I never really understood why he, he remarries, but... His again, as I've mentioned, his his ability to produce healthy male heirs is is not good. Mm. Um, I think they have something like six or seven, either very very short lived sons or unfortunate, you know, miscarriages and stillbirths. So there was still at this point a a real fear around the future Edward II, Edward of Carnarvon, the, the first English Prince of Wales. You know, there was a there was a real risk that he he wouldn't live to see see the throne. So. That was purely political. There was no, there was no love in that at all. Um, he gave it all to Eleanor. That's a shame for his second wife. Yeah, yeah. I almost feel quite bad for her. I guess you kind we, of maybe know the position you're getting into, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make yeah. it better. No, not at all. 
Next up, we have Gemma Holman, and she will tell us about an oft-forgotten couple, Edward III and Philippa of Hainaut. So, Edward and Philippa, um, was this an arranged marriage? Uh, their one was, yes. And why was it arranged? What made them a good match? Um, what made them a good match is that they were both very powerful people. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't kind of based on compatibility so much as the fact that Edward's mother was in the middle of planning a coup against his father. Um, as all good love stories begin, Isabella of France had kind of been sidelined quite a lot by um, Edward II's favourites, um, and she had basically gone into exile at the French court with a load of other English nobles who had kind of been pushed out from the country. Um, And they basically decided that they wanted to get rid of these favourites and kind of bring themselves back into the centre of English courtly life. And Isabella, through a bit of plotting and scheming, managed to get custody of her son, who was the future Edward III. And once she had the son in her possession, she had a lot more political power. But she still needed actual manpower um, to be able to do anything. Um, And although she was related to the French monarchy um, and England and France obviously didn't like each other very much, uh, the French king wasn't quite ready to sort of declare all out war on England on her behalf. So she got scheming with uh, one of her cousins who was married to the Count of Hainault. She has a nice eligible son. The Count of Hainault has a nice eligible daughter. Um, and they basically decide that they can make things work for them. So uh, they arranged the marriage between Edward and Philippa. Um, and in return, Isabella got some ships and some armies from the Count, which she then was able to use to sort of sail over to England um, and end up actually sort of claiming the throne off of her husband. Uh, so, yes, not the most romantic circumstances <laughs> for the start of a marriage. That's a widow. So what was their marriage like? Did they like each other? Were they compatible? It's one of those things that kind of was a really successful love story, really, for the medieval period. You know, obviously, lots of couples did grow to care for each other and love each other with these arranged marriages, but that was no guarantee. Edward and Philippa were kind of helped that they were very close in age. There was only sort of two years or so between them. So that helped a lot. There's sort of later love stories written by chronicler Foissart, who was a writer at the court of Edward and Philippa and knew them both personally. And he sort of has a bit more of a romanticised version of their meeting and says that, you know, because Philippa had lots of sisters and said that Edward had met all of her sisters, but out of all of them, he liked her the best. And so (laughs) he kind of makes it a much more romantic story. But there's definitely lots of evidence that they had a very early attraction towards each other. Um, And I think that was certainly helped by the fact that they were both marginalised back in England because once Isabella had taken over, she sort of ruled for quite a few years in Edward's name uh, because Edward was still a teenager. um, And so he was kind of pushed out of court a bit because Isabella didn't want him to have any control. She wanted to have all the control. And Philippa was obviously in a foreign land, didn't know anybody at all. So she's really reliant on Edward as her husband and her only connection to the land. Um, And they spent lots of time together. And yeah, there's lots of evidence that even really early on, they got on really well. Edward was buying her gifts. They traveled together when they could. Uh, They very quickly had a child together once they were able to start living together. And that success kind of carried on throughout their whole lives. You know, they were married for just over 40 years. 
they had 12 children together um, and they were always by each other's sides. You know, lots of medieval monarchs had to travel around all of their lands and different territories. But often the queen might stay put, so she might stay in the sort of capital whilst the king went and travelled around. But Philippa always went and travelled with Edward, um, and not just around England, but in different countries. So she went into Scotland when England was at war with Scotland. She went into France when England was at war with France. So uh, she was very much on the front lines of everything. There's just lots and lots of evidence that they really did care really deeply for each other and that they trusted each other. You know, Edward put a lot of political trust in Philippa as well. He let her run things when he wasn't around. Uh, She looked after their children. So it was a really close union between the two of them. Twelve children. I mean, you have to love somebody to have 12 children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, and 11 of them were born within 18 years of each other. So um, That's a lot of loving. Yeah, a lot of loving. (laughs) uh, Yeah, Philippa sort of spent a long time being pregnant. And yes, I I do think child number 12 was a little bit of an accident. So it was definitely love then. There's no nothing that suggests that it wasn't in a, a love match with the two eventually. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's no records at all of any discord between them, of any falling outs. You know, there's no evidence of, you know, other couples did sometimes, you know, wax and wane and, you know, they might spend a bit of time apart from each other and then come back together again. But all through their lives, you know, they're constantly together. They're constantly each other's company, traveling together, living together. Um, there's even sort of notes uh, among contemporaries of kind of surprise of how close they were. So the fact that when they travelled, they often shared a bed with each other. And, you know, obviously at this time, kings and queens would have separate bedchambers and they would only come together for procreation, perhaps. But yeah, there's an instance where they're travelling and they're staying at a a monastery um, filled with monks and the monks aren't very comfortable with a woman staying with them, Mm. even if she was the queen and she was in the king's chambers. And so she sort of graciously agrees to go and stay in the town and they're saying about how great she is for agreeing to do that. But the fact that she was that they were expecting to be able to stay with each other, you know, again, is kind of something that's remarkable enough that sort of contemporaries were commenting on that. So, yeah, there's just so much evidence that they did have a really close relationship with each other. So Philippa dies first, and how did Edward take her death? Really hard. Philippa had been very unwell for quite a few years, and they had been expecting her death for quite a while. There's lots of records of grants and things for the last few years of her life. So she's making provisions for if she dies kind of thing. Um, So they kind of knew it was coming. They had time to prepare. But as I said, they've been together for over 40 years. They were both teenagers, young teenagers when they'd gotten married. They'd gone through thick and thin together, you know, wars, children, the Black Plague, you know, all these things had happened. Um, And so it was a real hardship for Edward when Philippa died. And, um, you know, we have, again, from Foissart, a really touching sort of deathbed scene um, of the Queen. And she sort of gets her husband to promise that they'll be buried together in Westminster Abbey when his time comes. Um, And he sort of grants her all of her wishes on her deathbed. After that point, he clearly does suffer from her death. In the eyes of many contemporaries, her death is kind of a bit of a downfall in his reign. Once she's gone, that things start to not go very well. He sort of travels a bit less. He starts to take on poor advisors around him in people's eyes. 
And and yeah, for many, that is kind of the beginning of the end, that once Philip has died, that's kind of the end of the golden age of, of Edward's reign. Um, and he does fulfill his promise, you know, when he does die uh, several years later, he is buried next to her at Westminster Abbey. Um, and so he kind of kept that promise to her to the end. That's actually so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very sweet. <laughs> A great thank you to Chris and Gemma for joining us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque podcast or If It Ain't Baroque history. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and drainoflondon.com. See you next time!